are listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. Marsha Dixon is co-founder of the Petrobain Institute. We first met Marsha a few years ago when she was in Cambodia with a group of students touring garment factories. And one of the factories on that tour was Pactix, the factory where we both used to work. At the time, not knowing who Marsha was or what Better Buying was trying to do, I was pretty dismissive. I just finished getting the factory I managed, SA 1000 certified, and was particularly skeptical that anyone coming from the U.S., let alone an academic, would have anything useful to contribute to my operations. Ironic and hypocritical, I suppose, since I too am an American and came to Cambodia with the idea that I could contribute to the garment sector. Marsha listened patiently as I rattled off all the things wrong with the way the fashion industry does sustainability, and then, to my surprise, volunteered that she agreed with most of what I was saying, and that her life's work was trying to change that. She wanted suppliers to be the ones reviewing brand performance. And in a nutshell, that's what Better Buying does. They ask suppliers to anonymously review the brands they work for. Asking for information on a range of topics, from how well the brand does the planning and forecasting, to price negotiations, to payment terms, and beyond. Better Buying uses that data to put forward anonymized reports on the state of purchasing practices in the fashion industry. And to try and build better partnerships across supply chains. But we'll let Marsha tell you the details. In this episode, part one of our conversation, we ask Marsha about why she started Better Buying and how she became an advocate of purchasing practices in the first place. She also shares how the sustainable fashion narrative has changed since she first started working in the industry, and how Better Buying data has helped shape that narrative. We close with what she thinks the role of Better Buying data is in buyer accountability. In part two of our conversation, which we've also released today, we get into what it would take to get suppliers to open up and share their perspectives more freely, and the win-win opportunities that would come alongside that, both for suppliers and brands. But equally, we get into the limits of mutual understanding, and what else might need to happen in order for the industry to really see change. If you are on Instagram, please follow us to grow the conversation at Manufactured Underscore Podcast, or sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website www.manufacturedpodcast.com to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our homepage. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time today and agreeing to come on this podcast. I thought we could just start real general with Better Buying, what Better Buying does, and also why you started Better Buying. So Better Buying Institute reimagines supply chain sustainability, and we're leveraging data to strengthen supplier-buyer relationships and improve purchasing practices that drive supply chain profitability at the same time as protecting workers and the environment. For too long, 
brand CSR commitments and supplier social and environmental compliance had been undermined by poor purchasing practices. And that's anything from inaccurate forecasting to delayed or shifting design and development requirements to failure to pay invoices on time and in full and, and many others. And not only did we have those day-to-day business practices creating problems for suppliers and workers, but during the same period, supply chain power dynamics had pretty much all but eliminated the voice of suppliers who are in many areas of global production best suited to innovate and overcome challenges. So what we do is collect data globally from suppliers to anonymously inform how brands and retailers can improve their own practices and drive stronger financial, social, and environmental results for themselves and for their suppliers and their full supply chain. Purchasing practices are kind of like they're being talked about a lot over the last year and especially since COVID, but it's something that you've been involved in for a lot longer than that. So I'm curious to kind of for you to take us on that journey and how you reached, how you came to a point where you decided that this was such an important thing long before the industry was really talking about it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for recognizing that. So, yeah, you know, my, my career is, is academics or the last, you know, many decades of my career is academics. And I had been researching global supply chains for that period, um, specifically around workplace conditions and labor and human rights risks. And, you know, I had been around the world visiting factories, meeting with factory management and industry associations. And and the more I talked to manufacturers, the more I realized how difficult it was to fulfill this kind of top-down agenda on human rights that had been defined by brands and outsiders to the industry without any consultation with suppliers to determine what was feasible and what might get in this way, what might get in the way. And, you know, I, I, I was really um, influenced by a book by an anthropologist named Robert Chambers. Um, and the, the book was titled, Whose Reality Counts? And it was all about his research with to understand what kind of um, Peace Corps innovations had worked, what hadn't worked, and to try to kind of assess the, the you know, monitor and evaluate the success of that program and what how we could influence in, in the future. And so the whose reality counts really gets to the, the people affected and, the, and the, the companies affected in this case have to be taken into consideration. So, you know, here I was working in this global production area in, in CSR and human rights, and we would have conversations with people in companies about, well, what do people in, in the industry need to know about, you know, CSR? You know, not in the CSR department that's been developed or the human rights. It wasn't called human rights then very often, <laughs> sustainability department, whatever it was. But what do the people in the company need to know? And I remember one guy, you know, an executive in a big brand said, well, you know, they don't really need to know anything. We're, we're handling that. And of course, you know, he came back to me several years later and said, Marcia, you were right on. You were so far ahead of us <laughs> because that <laughs> company was one of the leading ones, the early ones to, to take on and look at purchasing practices. So the, the other things I had had a chance to do then as I began to realize, hey, purchasing practices, that makes a lot of sense. You know, why I'm focused on this being, you know, from the industry, within the industry and, and training professionals going into the industry, you know, when, when, when Oxfam uh, came along and said, you know, we're studying something we call 
it's called purchasing practices, and we're really not sure what that is, but we think they impact workplace conditions. I kind of stood step back and said, "Oh wow, yes, that's it." <laughs> so, so it, 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 thereafter, you know, the the focus of my work really became about those day to day business actions. And I spent, you know, I was 14 years on the board with the Fair Labor Association and influencing the policies that the Fair Labor Association took on around purchasing practices. I spent time consulting with several large brands and talking with a lot of people in their headquarter operations, as well as their you know, intermediaries and factory management. And that depth of knowledge that I was getting about what happens on a day-to-day basis that really pressures suppliers and makes business challenging and any progress related to workers' rights even more impossible. So here I was getting all this information and these companies that were paying us nicely were getting you know, a really in-depth look and understanding, and we had we had to find a way to drive large scale change in the consumer goods sector. I, I knew the information had to get out to more companies across industries than just those few who, for whatever internal motivation, had decided to spend big dollars to to you know to, on consulting fees. So, with the support of the CNA Foundation, now Louds Foundation, um, we began testing the feasibility of collecting supplier data with surveys and online tools versus that one-on-one, face-to-face type of interviewing that I'd been doing before. So just as important as the data collection was also then exploring the feasibility of whether we could create a safe space where suppliers felt safe and comfortable, you know, sharing honest, objective information about that business relationship without fear of retribution. And and the bottom line really became elevating the supplier voice and giving them a seat at the table when decisions are getting made. And so that's how Better Buying Institute was born as an organization that would leverage data to bring that supplier voice forward from every corner of the world. I have to ask, because I think that there are a lot of people who have been in the industry working in sustainability for a long time, who still didn't pay that much attention to purchasing practices and maybe had, you know, in a sense, like the same seat, front row seat that you had, and didn't necessarily come to that same conclusion. And I know that something you've told me in the past is that you are, um, I think, by training a, a, te- a, a, um, a technical designer. Is that right? Well, not technical. They didn't really have technical designers. No, I was a designer. I was a designer. A designer. Yeah, a that's designer. right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I, I'm just curious, do you think that that sort of played a role? Like the fact that you have such an intimate understanding of actually how clothes are produced, that that played any sort of role in, in your attention to these issues? Well, sure, especially, and that's the focus on the apparel industry that we've started with, too, because, you know, yeah, I mean, I've been academic and I've been teaching it in a program that focuses on the apparel industry and and training professionals to go into the industry in jobs in design and development and buying and merchandising in PR, you know, and, and sourcing in every aspect of the industry. So, you know, that by by nature of our field, we focus intently on how that industry operates. And, and for me, that focus was on how that industry operated globally, you know, so, so yes, yeah, so that, you know, but my own personal experience too, you know, I, I think it, even though it's a few, a few years ago um, and, and the industry has changed a lot since, you know, since I started, 
um, my experience, I think, still reflects a common experience of many people who are running those day-to-day operations that are purchasing practices. And that is that you are so caught up in what you're doing and the goals that you're trying to achieve. um, And often you don't really have the opportunity to see how that work plays out in the, in the context of production that, you know, you're clueless about your impact. Uh, I, 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 we, I worked in the industry when we had a lot of production still in the U.S. In one uh, case, the factory was upstairs. And in another case, we outsourced to 30 miles down the road. And I really didn't like to go to the factories. It was like I did. And, and now I love to go to factories. But, I, you know, I didn't understand that world. I didn't, you know, want to know, really. And, and I think, you know, we just get so caught up in our day-to-day business and the, the goals that we have to make and, and our limited experience, you know, globally and, you know, in production um, prevents us sometimes from understanding how, things play out. And even back in the consulting jobs we were doing, we would have focus groups with different, you know, groups of merchants or planners or uh, developers. And we'd ask them if, you know, had they ever thought about this, that, or the other, you know, in terms of their impacts of their decisions. And you would see this like, well, no, we never thought about that. But then as they thought about it, it was starting to click and it's like, ooh, maybe we are having an impact. So I think all of that, yes, led me, you know, to think and and realize that when, when we started talking about the day-to-day business, it just became obvious to me that, wow, what a, what a huge elephant in the room that we've missed. And as we started talking to a few leadership companies that started to look internally at what kind of impact they were having, we were hearing things anywhere from uh, 50 to over 75% of the the problems of factory compliance that they were trying to work with in their supply chain, 50 to 75% could be traced back to their day-to-day business activities at corporate headquarters. So that is huge. Wow. How do you even go about measuring that? I mean, that's, uh, that's a yeah, lot. Well, I don't, I don't know how they were doing yeah. that, but they were basically trying to look at each compliance issue and say, why did this happen? You know, through a root yeah. cause analysis. And then a yeah. root cause analysis kept leading right back to HQ. <laughs> but it's interesting because I've been working on an article about due diligence and I, it's really pushed me to think a bit about, so going through the OECD due diligence guidelines and reading them in detail and then thinking through like it it really pushed me to think through like I mean I've talked publicly on this show before that I didn't really appreciate or find a lot of value in my in the social compliance audits that I experienced as a factory manager and thinking through like these due diligence requirements and these guidelines pushed me to think outside the box like well okay, if I didn't appreciate what I was asked to show or to demonstrate during audits, like what would I have wanted to be asked? What would I have, what would, what would have been useful to have auditors come and ask me about, especially with regards to due due diligence. And I, I'm thinking of that with regard to the anecdote that you just shared, because the conclusion that I came to was, well, what I like, what I would have liked to have been asked would be, to show proof that I had done everything that I could in terms of 
things that were within my control. So for example, maybe my the fabric mills that I was buying from, maybe I, I couldn't really assure that they were doing everything in a perfect way. And that was totally, you know, especially as a small factory, I didn't have a lot of leverage that was totally outside of my control. But I wish that auditors had asked me, was I paying them on time? Was I giving them a forecast? Was I, you know, and, 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 and I think that really speaks and basically like pushing me on all the things that were within my control and asking for evidence of that instead of asking for evidence of, about, you know, whether I had audited them, which I hadn't. I mean, they were not in Cambodia. It would have been too expensive, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it would have been a waste of money because, like I said, we had very little leverage. And and so that I think just really, I think, speaks to your point, which is that in the end, like so many of these social and environmental um, challenges throughout the supply chain, I think, can be tied back to, you know, in, in this in your particular example, headquarters, but really at every level. And that there's somehow like this need to push at every level to push yourselves to to say, OK, there are a lot of things outside of my control, but but what is within my control and have I really held up the mirror? Yeah. And, and, and that underscores, by, underscores that point earlier about whose reality counts. Right. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I think uh, the work that better buying is doing in terms of collecting data from suppliers about the performance of brands is kind of, is pretty radical in the sense that it, it kind of flips that, on its head and, and says, well, instead of like top down, we're going to look bottom, bottom up. Is that the right expression? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, when we first started talking suppliers about this, this possibility, you know, we realized that we couldn't just, you know, start talking about what we were doing. We had to really make an explicit statement up front. Okay. What we're talking about is you evaluating your customer, because otherwise the assumption was, oh, we're going to be evaluated again ourselves by our customer in another way. And so we really had to say, wait, no, no, this is different. This is opposite. You evaluating your customer. And we would get this response of like, ooh, that's interesting. And then and then we'd get the response of, oh, we can't do that. But, but you know, and our response, but, but what if it's anonymous? What if we protect that? What if this allows you to, um, to voice those concerns without, you know, the, the brand knowing which 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 suppliers said what and the, the, ooh that sounds interesting too <laughs> so uh, but it, it was we had to make an explicit point about this being that other look that really about due diligence looking the other direction looking right back into the corporate headquarters mm. and you know I, I I mean I think like Jesse and I refer to the reports that Better Buying puts out a lot on this podcast and. Um, because even if the data is anonymized, it, it really makes it a lot easier for us to make the case when we're, when we're talking to individuals, you know, most of our conversations are one-on-one -on -one conversations with individual suppliers. And it, when we have this, this anonymous aggregate data, it makes it a lot easier for us to make the case that the individual stories and voices that we're putting forward are, are really not exceptional. That my story or Jesse's story or somebody else's story is 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 the norm and, and, and representative of 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 the of a bigger picture. And so when we were talking, when Jesse and I were brainstorming for you know what we might want to ask you during this conversation, that was one of the things that came to mind. And 
I don't know, it might, it might sound a bit strange, but do you see yourself or better buying as a storyteller? And what do you think the role of data is in changing sustainability narratives? Yeah, it's a really good question. It was uh, an interesting one for me to think about. Um, You know, you're right. Fundamentally, research is the basis of what we do. And that means that we need to have a systematic way of collecting data from a lot of people, not just hearing the loudest voices in the room or those most comfortable telling their stories face to face. So what we're hearing from the companies using our data is that a lot of times we confirm a hunch they have and then give them the power and leverage to make progress internally within their companies and with that solid foundation from which to drive change. Um, Because otherwise it is too easy to ignore one supplier complaining, but, but because we collect both qualitative and quantitative data, it allows us to substantiate to the the extent that practices are problems and, and then enrich those with the details and bring them to life with examples. And so, you know, I think the narrative about sustainability has changed both internally and externally. And I think the narrative, particularly about purchasing practices, has changed. Our research has helped to broaden and deepen that discussion. Um, it used to be that I'd talk to a CSR person about purchasing practices, and then they, they would say, oh, we have a great relationship with sourcing. And then I would say, well, yeah, but what about your merchants, your developers? When was the last time you talked with them? It's not just one functional area that's involved in improving purchasing practices. It's about involving every aspect of the business. Um, and so with, with our work, I think we've been able to help companies and other stakeholders really understand the depth and breadth of purchasing practices, problems that can that can put pressure on suppliers and then therefore impede their ability to provide good working conditions, improve their environmental performance or what have you. It's not just about knowing, you know, whether the pocket list on a design was changed and when you did that. It's much bigger array of activities that happen on a day to day basis that that prevent sustainability um, in a lot of in, in in all three P's, you know, financial sustainability, environmental and social. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, for me, one of the silver linings that's come out of this pandemic and COVID is that I think purchasing practices are sort of rightfully emerging. Maybe this is naive, but I, my, at least from where I'm sitting, they're rightfully emerging as the sort of protagonist of the sustainable fashion story. And um I think, I mean, we'll see what what happens and whether we're able to make the most of that momentum. But I think it's it's um, it's it's also quite exciting, you know. It's it, it became too hard to ignore anymore. Um, you know, I think every company probably has had their suppliers point to challenges and pressures and just hadn't listened for you know, for a long, long time. This is not, purchasing practices didn't become a problem when COVID broke out. You know, purchasing practices had been a problem for a long time. The voices of suppliers weren't being heard and there wasn't an understanding of the impacts of that. You know, and, and I just think, uh, you know, talking about the data and, and the kind of stories that tell, you know, what I've seen in my work over the last few decades has just been this really kind of unfortunate and pervasive disrespect of suppliers and the role they play in this, you know, pretty complex 
supply chain and ecosystem. And, and you know, in, in, there is no business for retailers and brands without manufacturers and suppliers. And there, you know, likewise, there isn't, you know, unless they have a huge domestic market, there's not a lot of business for suppliers and manufacturers without that export market. So we're all in this together. And yet I have seen, you know, brands belittle, question, ignore, just downgrade suppliers for so long. And I think there's just what what's happened in the last um, year is an increasing acknowledgement that collaboration through true partnerships is going to be key to improving business and sustainability. Um, and, you know, and so I, I think that that's what's really changed is a recognition of how critical um, these practices are in achieving sustainability goals um, and how we really have to work together as a supply chain to, to do the right thing and to, to make it work for everybody. I want to turn to your report, which came out, when was it, November? <laughs> the index uh, report. And we've done so many this year because of special reports yeah. for, for COVID. Yeah, I think, it, and um, we want, we pulled out one quote from the report, which um, we really liked, and I'm going to read it. And it was, objective data gathered from suppliers about actual business performance, not just policies and procedures, should be central to stakeholder engagement about buyer accountability. That's a big statement. And so I'm curious, how do you see the data that Better Buying collects about purchasing practices? How, do you, how would you like to see that used to facilitate buyer accountability? Um, and maybe more generally, what do you envision suppliers' role to be in buyer accountability, whether today or your hopes for the future? Yeah. You know, let me start with kind of what would what success would look like for, for better buying, you know, and that mm-hmm. is that buyers and suppliers create mutually beneficial business relationships that achieve shared goals of profitability and social and environmental sustainability. In that in that vision of success, buyers treat their suppliers as trusted partners and use feedback data to fully understand their impact on the supplier experience. And at the same time, suppliers engage confidently with their customers. So that's where we see we need to go. These mutually beneficial business relationships, but with buyers playing a role and suppliers paying a role and suppliers paying a more confident and participatory role in, in, in achieving the goals of that partnership. Mm -hmm. So transparency, data, and trust are key principles in accountability. And so too often, and you point to that quote in our report, too often brands make bold commitments or build a CSR platform that isn't backed up by data. And they can make, they make claims about progress, but at the end of the day, they, those aren't accompanied with data, and they really have to hold up the mirror to their own purchasing practices to evaluate whether their behavior is hindering compliance efforts. So it's, you know, it's no longer enough to audit factories 
um, you know, to for compliance, but instead there's a need to audit for the barriers to compliance and then demonstrates what's being done to eliminate those barriers. So that's why we're talking about purchasing practices and what we're doing at Better Buying as a form of due diligence. It's a full supply chain due diligence that looks at what are we doing at corporate headquarters that creates barriers to compliance over overall. We have to look at that. And so Better Buying is providing brands an independent external audit of their purchasing practices, essentially drawing on data from their suppliers. So this type of accountability is a little bit different. It draws on long-term progress, ideally over time, and ideally every, every year when we collect data, more suppliers will take advantage of the opportunity to provide data about their buyer's purchasing practices and therefore support their customers to identify the need for change and what that change might look like. Because I think I shared earlier, you know, we're seeing a lot of good ideas and, and creative solutions coming from suppliers that sit in a unique position because they work with so many different customers. They can see what works well. In some cases, they can see what works really badly in other cases, and they can bring that knowledge to the table to to help redesign and, and co-create different ways of work that are more effective and, and uh, beneficial for everybody. So we want to see a large uptake of participation of suppliers in our annual data collection. That would be a, what we would want to see over the next year in terms of the supplier role and account- accountability. Do you see, like one of the things I've heard from different suppliers that we've talked to has been like, well, you know, suppliers aren't stupid. And a lot of times we get into these business relationships and we don't, especially with these big brands that have these shiny reputations and we think like life is going to be good. You know, we've got the golden ticket now. And we didn't really realize going into it, you know, how we were going to be treated. And, um, you know, if only suppliers, you know, had and I, I'm not necessarily saying I agree with this, but one of the sentiments I've heard is if only suppliers had access to information about brands purchasing practices, they could make more informed choices about the kinds of customers that they want to take on. And I'm curious, what do you think about that idea? And is it something that Better Buying is interested in? We've had lots of conversations with suppliers about that. Um, And at, at the end of the day, you know, I always cheer when I hear a, a supplier that has fired one of their customers for whatever reason, (laughs) you know, they said, we're just not going to work. We're not going to work for you anymore. We're not going to do business with you anymore. And I always cheer because, you know, Mm -hmm. ideally in an ideal world, we would have the ability of suppliers to, to choose who they do business with. But one thing Mm -hmm. we've learned over with better buying over the last several years and talking with a lot of suppliers of all, you know, from different countries of different sizes of different shapes, uh, that, the vast majority of suppliers feel like they have absolutely no ability to pick and choose their customers that, you know, the, the oversupply we have in the, in the global apparel industry means that if I don't take this business, somebody else will, and I will be out of business. So that's the unfortunate situation. Um, However, um, you know, there's still a, a, a value, I think, to suppliers to to understanding what they're getting into, um, you know, when they when they start a relationship. Because, like you said, we, you know, they, the supplier that said, "Oh, we didn't know we were going to be treated this way," well, they may still have 
taken that business, it's very likely they would have taken that business. But at least perhaps they would have understood, oh, you know, this company is absolutely terrible at making deadlines, or this company is absolutely terrible at making on-time payments. So let's make sure that we try to, to one, at least know that, because that's going to help us, you know, with our cash flow, if we at least know that's going to happen, you know, that that's likely to happen. Or if we know we're going to have to put more people in the handholding position, you know, more merchandisers and account managers to make sure things are happening on time and to pull them along and to make sure those calendar deadlines are met. At least we know that in advance and can and can work more effectively um, with with that customer and and you know hopefully make things smoother for ourselves in the meantime. So so that I think is a value of of the the kind of data that we are collecting from suppliers when they when they see what. Um, what other suppliers are experiencing as well. So when when a supplier evaluates a, a brand, they can see what other suppliers have said about their customer, or or they cannot. They cannot at this point. We have a we're oh, building can. into oh, feedback yeah. feedback kind of situations for suppliers where the the subscriber shares back their their scorecard with the the broader group of suppliers. Best, the best solution is for the supplier to be completely honest and, and provide the objective business data so that that buyer can can identify the problem areas and get to work. You know, I think that's the most fundamentally important. And when we start talking about, mm-hmm. you know, that that the potential to use it different ways, I think we could lose that the integrity of the data just in in uh, in its most important form, which is to inform the buyer where they need to be working and how to how to improve. An idea pop up in my mind. I was just thinking another value of better buying data. I just imagine another function or another value for suppliers if they could share with each other's scorecards. I'm thinking a more equal partnership sometimes is more often um, in a in a. In some specific product, for instance, a simple cotton T-shirt, I assume the relationship between brands and the buyer uh, suppliers must be harder than a very technical product. So if there is a garment supplier, somehow have a chance to decide, maybe we have a little bit of money left, we can decide if we switch our product or if we upgrade, then they could anticipate to say, okay, I stay with this type of product. I don't know. Maybe mm. the data will show. Okay, eighty percent of brands in of this specific product, their purchasing practice is like this, like this, like this. So maybe I don't know a group of this uh, several such suppliers. Maybe eventually they could grow up to become a new company. Sounds crazy to upgrade or switch to another more technical product. So at least they can anticipate. Yeah, I don't think that's unrealistic. And and we do gather data about the largest, uh, the type of product, the product category, which represented the largest order to different customers. And we haven't really started analyzing that data yet, breaking out how, how purchasing practices differ by different product categories. However, if you look back to a year and a half ago to the release of our previous index report that really started to break out the the supplier experiences and how that was different geographically. You know, you did see in in Bangladesh where there is, you know, a lot more of that big volume, low, low cost production that you did see, you know, on the plus side, more stability in the ordering, more clarity of what was coming, you know, in terms of a forecast and and more, um, you know, less peaks and values, 
peaks and valleys on a month-to-month basis that makes, you know, really hard to juggle the factory. So you did see that accompanying that kind of uh, production, but you also saw that, you know, that production is largely driven by who can do it cheapest. And so the the pressure on those suppliers was then to even to make what was already cheap, even cheaper. That was how to make progress, you know, which I think is why, you know, the BGMEA was thinking about how do we broaden what we do and, and uh, offer more than just this high volume, low cost mm. production at the same time, but without, you know, taking on the, the other risks that come with, you know, being able to provide fashion items short term, you know, and things like that, because we saw basically, you know, that report kind of is almost like a sourcing 101 to me, because it was like every, every, uh, the way that different countries and regions have, uh, uh, you know, developed their, their, their competitive strengths, Mm-hmm. Um, was was playing out in that the, the the therefore the the purchasing practices that that support that competitive strength were more forceful and powerful on them. So you know Bangladesh is known as a low cost producer. Well, then low cost was a real pressure, and the pricing was a real pressure on in the purchasing practices there. You know Hong Kong and and Turkey known Hong Kong known to be able to get anything produced, you know, at any quality level, at any price, at, in, in a, a quick time frame. Therefore, guess what? Forecasting and, and you know, the order mm-hmm. ups and downs were, were terrible there because, you know, they're known for that. That's why people go there. So there, so there is that need kind of for that balance, you know, and, and one of the things we hear from suppliers about, you know, just, you know, a, a reward for us for being doing better is to have a better mix to have kind of a little bit of some of that basics and have some of that that fashion stuff too so we can at least you know have smooth out some things between those competing types of products and on that note we're going to close part one of this episode but be sure to tune into part two which we've also released today and where we get into what it would take to get suppliers to open up and share their perspectives more freely Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening and see you next week.